0: Hey, welcome to another episode of the Young Specialist Energy Podcast. My name is Mark Heinemann, and I'm joined today with our guest, Dominique Gomez, Deputy Director of the Colorado Energy Office. Dominique, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, Mark.
0: Awesome. Um, Dominique, rather than me try and uh, read your background to, to our listeners, I was hoping to just have you kind of do a self-introduction. Um, maybe if you're similar to what you would do at a interview party for the... You know, if you have 30 to 60 seconds to introduce yourself, then we can dig a little bit on your background and then get, get into kind of Colorado Energy Office.
1: Sure. Sounds good. So my name is Dominique Gomez, and I am originally from a rural part of the state outside Colorado Springs, and I have spent my career working on climate issues, and I returned to Denver in 2018, and I've been the Deputy Director at the Colorado Energy Office since December of 2020.
0: That's fantastic. Where did you start? Where did you start your career? Have you always been in energy?
1: So my very first job, I guess I'll I'll start out of college. I could give you my 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 favorite job for a long time was my high school job. I worked at a bread bakery. Uh, (laughs) Jermaine, to this topic, Uh, my first job out of college, I actually worked for the governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, for his uh, environment department. And so that was back in 2007, and I got to work on, at the time, uh, there were states in the United States working on a cap-and-trade program that would have been regional in the Western United States. It was at the end of the Bush administration, and the thought was, well, if we're not going to take federal action on climate change, we can at least do something on the state level. Uh, So it was a really exciting time. And so I I guess I have been working on on climate for a long time, and I, I learned something back then, which is... You get to do big things, but then they don't always happen. So I worked on this regional program, which, which never ended up, uh, moving forward, but it did give me a good introduction to, to climate policy and, and sort of what states can do. And so now that I'm back home in, in Colorado, uh, we're, we're definitely pushing a lot of things forward.
0: Sure. Awesome. So did you do that straight out of school and then move, move to Colorado after that?
1: Quite a few things in between. So I worked in New Mexico for a short time. Uh, After that, I I moved up to Seattle, uh, and I worked for a small environmental consulting firm that's based there that I now actually sit on the board of. It's called Cascadia Consulting. And they got their start in the 90s doing waste and recycling studies and and programs, And, and now they've really expanded to do all sorts of different climate, energy, sustainability work. They do a lot of work on equity um, and community work as well. Uh, and then after three years there, I went back to grad school and did both a master's in public policy and an MBA. Couldn't really decide if I would be public or private sector focused, and so have have certainly bounced back a, a little bit between the two. And then after that, um immediately out of grad school, I was really interested in, in water. Um, so I had seen that a lot of companies were doing really innovative things in the energy space. There were all sorts of renewable um, energy companies. There were all sorts of energy efficiency companies. There was just a lot happening, and, and water sounded a little more quiet, uh, and so I was interested in, in what might be happening in the water space, and I found a very small startup. When I started, it was uh, six people called WaterSmart Software. So coming out of grad school, I was in the Bay Area and spent, let's see, it's six six years, I guess, uh, seven years, maybe, at uh, Water Smart and kind of rode that from a very small, you know, sixth employee to when I left, I think it was about 45 and, and we were about to get acquired. Uh, okay. And so I became the chief operating officer, served a lot of different roles there um, and really learned a lot about running a business, uh, learned a lot about Silicon Valley and tech software, a uh, lot about water utilities and challenges within water and water utilities. And then a lot just about managing a team um, since ultimately that that became more of my responsibility.
0: Um That's awesome. then, can we can we i guess zoom in on that or touch on that sure. just i I'm I'm super curious what what kind of software were you guys building for the water space and I'm yep. curious on your perspective on water more more generally.
1: Yep, so the software that WaterSmart offered was a engagement software for water utilities to connect with their customers on their water use. And specifically to provide better information for customers that would uh, really encourage them to reduce water use. Um, and so we, we that was, let's see, I started there in 2013, um, which was sort of a couple years into a, a really big drought in the Western United States, particularly in California. And so the need to conserve was really clear Um And a lot of people don't know much about their water use. You know, most Mm -hmm. people don't know much about their energy use either, but, but water bills tend to be really unreadable for most households. Um, the units are not things that people understand. Um, often it's not even really English and, and water tends to still be fairly affordable for many households as well. So it's not something that people. Uh, necessarily conserve of because of the price. There are, that's certainly not true everywhere or for every family. Affordability is, is a, is a big issue for many households, but, but not necessarily for the majority of households. Um, so it was a, a, really interesting software, just, uh, used social norms, used, uh, you know, better, uh, and just kind of education really, um, about water use. And then depending on data availability could also use sort of more alerts and, uh, more technology to, to help people, uh, get their water use. Yeah. So it was a really uh, good time to to learn about conservation. I will say that one thing that I also learned is that conservation is sort of a double-edged sword for water utilities because water selling water is how they make money.
0: <laughs> yes, but <so they, laughs> simultaneously saying, no, no, don't use as much, but also, wait, that inhibits our ability to do our business, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Interesting. And- and there are um, methods and, and ways of, of constructing rates that make it easier for water utilities to, to be able to encourage conservation at certain times. But overall, I would say most water utilities haven't moved in that direction. And so um, the, the desire to conserve is, is, um, is maybe not as strong as it, it might need to be in the future, uh, knowing the sure. reality of, of water, in particular in the Western United States.
0: Your, your insight that there's, or that water is not a, a huge driver, or the price of it is not a huge driver for people to conserve, um, is very, very interesting to me. I've, I've long thought that water in the US, um, and in the Western US in particular, is just priced incorrectly, meaning like it, it is a finite resource for fresh water at least, but we know how to desalinate water and clean water. And we should just price it more expensively. I'm curious on just your thoughts on increasing price overall. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm really curious. No, that's fine.
1: <laughs> I'm happy to talk about water. I
0: haven't
1: gone talk about it as much, although I do sit on um, the board of Denver Water now, and so I do get to think about water here.
0: And, well, you've got great insight there, too, then.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, so water is priced in a very strange way. Generally, in much of the United States, when you pay your water bill, you're not really paying for the water. You're paying for what it took to get you clean water. So what you're paying for is the the transit, the transportation of the water, the um, getting it to you know to your tap, and then any sort of treatment that needed to happen to it. Um, so the water itself as a commodity isn't really priced in, and so the scarcity of it is not really Priced in necessarily, um, and so yes, it it is generally underpriced, I would say. Now, that being said, I, I don't want to gloss over affordability because, as as you know, you know, we have just huge income inequality in the United States, and so house there are many households for whom water, like every other necessity, food, and medicine, and Child care and other things is unaffordable. Um, right. But I would say that that's probably more of an issue with our income inequality in general than, than with the water prices, which tend to be fairly low. The other thing that I'll say is that low-income households often tend to To be in, you know, apartments or renters, and and they may not pay a water bill directly. So water does not usually tend to be sub-metered. So if you're in an apartment building, you might pay your own electric bill, but you probably don't pay your own water bill. And that's partly because it's it is uh, cheap. It's it's usually you know much cheaper than your energy bill.
0: The administrative cost isn't worth the uh, yeah splitting it out. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's get back to energy then. I after you left the the uh, software company. Did you then move to Colorado?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, let's see, I, I moved yeah. sort of at the end of my time, um, at the software company, wanted to come back to Colorado. And at, at that point, I was, was traveling a lot, traveling a lot anyway. Um, and so was able to actually work from here and then spend time in San Francisco every month, um, for the last maybe year or so that I was at, at the software company. Um, and then I actually, uh, had a long transition out because I was going on maternity leave for my first um, child who was born in, in April of 2019. And during that time um, I knew that the company was sort of on the road to being acquired. And so I decided not to return. Um, it would have been kind of a, a return for a brief time before it's before the acquisition. So I, I had spent a lot of time transitioning out and then um, just, just left. And so then it was a, it was eventually acquired it. It kind of took a little bit longer than expected, but um, I think within the year after I, I had left. Um, and then I was back here in Colorado. I, I had a, a brief uh, stint about a year long at a wonderful sort of startup in, in a way, uh, but at a university, at Colorado State University, a uh, personal hero of mine, Ken Salazar, who's now the ambassador to Mexico and used to be um, our U.S. senator and attorney general before that uh had started a center there called the Salazar Center and they work on climate resilience and large landscape conservation and really connecting research and policy and practice. Um, and so I was very interested to to be there and kind of see what they were doing and um, got to spend some time helping set up their programs. I was there at the beginning of COVID. So that's where you know I first started to use Zoom all the time, etc. And then um, uh, about a, a year uh, later, uh, this job opening came at the Colorado Energy Office. And, and although I really loved the Salazar Center and there are many good things going on there, I, I just couldn't turn, turn down the opportunity. So I've been yeah. at the Energy Office since uh, December 2021.
0: 2020. In, in the same... Oh, I'm, I'm getting confused <laughs> about the year. <laughs> my, my time flies, right?
1: I know. Um
0: have you been in the same role in the entire time
1: at the energy office? Yes. I, yeah. I was hired as deputy director. Yep.
0: Okay. And how is, how is the energy office structured? Who do they report to? How big is the team? Help, help our audience kind of understand just uh, the scope and scale of um, the org.
1: Sure. So the energy office is an interesting small office. It is part of the governor's office. So we are part of the, the Jared Polis administration, um, but we are our own agency. So our executive director, Will Tour, is a cabinet uh, member. Um, and that being said, we're, we're pretty small compared to some of the other agencies. You know, when you look at the department of public health and environment or uh, department of transportation, both, which we work with very closely, they're, they're enormous. We're about 44, uh, staff members. So we're pretty small, um, But that being said, we're growing very quickly. So given all of the work that we're, we're taking on and some new state funded programs and federal programs, and we can get into that in just a minute, we, we probably will be, will be 50 within the next few months and, and probably go a little bit northward of there. Um, within the energy office, we have sort of five teams overall. So we have one focused on policy and, and regulatory and legislative policy. and So they, they really push the, the governor's agenda, um, both at the legislature and then at a number of commissions, particularly the Public Utilities Commission. We have a transportation team focused on uh, reducing emissions from the transportation sector, which is the largest source of emissions within our state. And then we have a um, buildings and finance team, which really focuses on on the building sector and reducing emissions from the built environment. And then we have a um, weatherization team, which focuses at weatherization as a as a program that's been supported from the federal government um, since the 70s. We also have some state funding for that program, and they focus on low income Coloradans and um, reducing emissions from households by doing weatherization. That means insulation and more energy efficiency appliances, et cetera. We also do things like solar, and we do some things called beneficial electrification, which basically is moving away from using uh, fossil fuels, so often natural gas or propane in that case. Um, and I would love to talk more about weatherization in, in just a moment. Um, and then let's say I said policy, transportation, transportation, building, finance, weatherization. And then we have uh, our operations team, of course, which is all our budget and finance and and supporting the the rest of the office. So those teams all um, report through me. And then we have a couple of special advisors who uh, work directly with our executive director. So we have one special advisor on local government issues and one special advisor on transportation and climate change issues.
0: Fascinating. That was a fantastic overview. And response spurs <laughs> <That's a lot. laughs> so, so many additional questions that I have is colorado's energy office unique in colorado or do a lot of states mirror this format
1: so that's a great question i'm not sure i have the i'm not sure that i know exactly so there just about every um, state has an energy office it might be called something a little bit different but sure. most states do have some sort of energy office and there are federal programs that fund um, state energy offices, you know, in addition to any sort of state funding that goes out. Yeah. How they're structured, I think, tends to really vary widely. Um, there is an uh, association that's called NASIO, the National Association of State Energy Offices. And so they, they definitely provide a lot of resources and, and working groups and other things to state energy offices. But, but I, my sense is, they do really vary in terms of the programs they offer, the size of the pro- of the energy office overall, um, and sort of what they focus on. But I would imagine many of them do have some of the same key programs. You know, just given that that these are kind of key key areas of focus for, for many
0: states. Awesome. Okay. Um, and then the, I mean, you listed a bunch of stuff that you guys are focused on, but is there kind of an overall overarching mission or sure. um, objective? for the office to, to accomplish. Yeah,
1: so so our our mission, and I'll I'll just read it out cuz this is it. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and consumer energy costs by advancing clean energy, energy efficiency, and zero emission vehicles to benefit all Coloradans. And so that kind of lays out, you know, the broad uh, agenda. Um, I will say that we are actually updated our statutory authority, which kind of covers what the energy office should be focused on uh, in some legislation last year. And it, it very closely aligns with, with what we do now. You know, I will say that over time, the the role of the energy office um, has, has probably changed as we have focused more and more on climate change and reducing emissions. So it is no longer, um, really about sort of promoting all energy sources or um, anything sort of like that it is much more about how do we reduce, reduce emissions.
0: Okay. Well, that's, this is wonderful. I'm so, so happy to yeah learn more. So um, I, I think I'd just like to end over to you. You mentioned weatherization. I'm so I'm most interested in the policy and public utility commission piece, but you mentioned weatherization. I think that's super interesting too. So if you want to touch on just kind of how, You guys are approaching each of these sectors and how you're thinking about each of them. I think that'd be super helpful.
1: Sure. I'd I'd be happy to start with weatherization. Um, So weatherization is our largest team in the office in terms of the number of staff. And I would imagine that it's our longest running sort of program and team. As I said, that it's been supported since the 70s by federal funding. And then there's also a number of state funding sources. And last year, through legislation, HB 1105, we uh, actually got a a sort of more long-term stable uh, source of funding from the state because we had relied on state oil and gas severance taxes, which were really variable and sort of overall um, dwindling. So we're really excited to have such long-term support for this program. So weatherization serves income-qualified Coloradans. And what it does is it's a free program that offers energy efficiency. And in the case of Colorado and some of our more flexible state sources, we also do renewable energy. So doing solar panels either on home, um, you know, on roof solar panels or, or buy-ins into solar, community solar. Uh, for low income Coloradans. And, um, this not only helps, you know, reduce their bills, which is really important, um, and one of the goals by making their homes more efficient. It also just makes their lives a little more comfortable. Because if, if you are struggling with your energy bills, one of the biggest coping mechanisms is to just not heat your home in the, in the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not comfortable. Um, and it's often dangerous. So, you know, we, we have, certainly heard stories about um, fires and you know burns from being too close to a small space heater and things like that and so you know it, it's obviously it's important for us that that we reduce emissions and, and make homes more energy efficient and save costs but we are also very motivated by by making people's lives a little more comfortable um, I will also say that we know that heat is increasingly a problem um, you know with climate change, we are getting much hotter in the summer, and so many of our um, programs not only are, are focused on on energy efficiency and keeping the house warm in this in the winter, but we know that many of the same measures also keep your your home cool in the summer. And heat related illness is actually a, a much um, much larger scale issue from a, a health public health perspective than than
0: cold. Really interesting. Yes. I wouldn't have guessed that.
1: Yeah, so heat-related illness is sort of the the number one public health threat from climate change, um, and it particularly affects. Is
0: that out? I guess is that outweighed by the, the potential benefit of warming, where people aren't as cold as often. Has anyone looked into the cost benefit of like, well, people aren't heating their or you know, if somebody's not heating their home in the winter on affordable energy or poor insulation? I mean, is that that then if it gets warmer, then that's a benefit too, right?
1: Well, the, I guess it's different seasons. So, you know, f- for sure the the winters might be a little bit warmer. Although, you know, with with climate change, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a straight line. You know, I think we we tend sure. to see more extreme temperatures. So, um, you know, you might actually get um, more extreme temperatures in the in the winter and more cold spells as well. Um, I think you know warmer warmer overall, but maybe a couple of days here and there that are really truly cold, and you know that's when it tends to be a problem. Um, but the the heating, you know, the, the heat-related illness is is the issue that we're concerned about, and particularly for low-income um, older people um, and, you know, communities of color uh, are de- definitely disproportionately represented in, in both of those groups that are really vulnerable to, to heat-related illness. And we see um, this in whenever there are big heat waves, you know, you, you tend to see disproportionate number of, of deaths. Um, and I know that that was something that was uh, definitely experienced last year in the Pacific Northwest, and, and we worry about here in Colorado as
0: well. So, what does the what's the Energy Office doing to address higher heat then?
1: So, a lot of the programs in the weatherization um, program are are beneficial for both cold and and hot weather. So, one you know example is insulation. So, when you insulate your house, you know you're just making it more efficient. One of the other things that we've been focused on are something called heat pumps. Um, So this is a, a great beneficial electrification step. So what that means is we're moving away from fossil fuels, and in this case, often from propane heat um to an electric heat pump, which um can both be used to heat your home in the in the winter, but also it's an air conditioner in the summer. And so that's a, a great step. Um, we also see, particularly right now, propane costs are very high. They disproportionately affect rural Coloradans, um, and you know, rural areas that are not connected to, to natural gas. And so by switching them from propane to heat pumps, that not only provides a, a lower cost um a heater in the in the winter but also provides air conditioning in the summer.
0: I guess that would infer that they're connected to electric an electricity supply, right?
1: Yep, and we, we okay. I don't think we serve, you know, many low-income coloradans that are completely off the grid, but um sure. yes, they often, you know, don't don't have natural gas. They do have propane in rural areas. So
0: what's the scale of the weatherization effort? I mean, how many homes are you guys retrofitting each year? How many how many people are you helping?
1: So we currently serve about 2,000 households each year, um, and that will increase here in the next couple of years because we have secured both additional state funding as well as some new federal funding. So there is a, a big um, additional pot of federal funding for weatherization through the Infrastructure Act, which passed last November. Um, so we will be ramping that up. But... Um, you know, I will say that it, it's it's something where we, we can't serve the need. So um, there are way more uh, households which qualify for the program than we
0: can serve every year. Interesting. Wow. And I mean, is this like a problem with building code also? Why, why, why do so many homes need to be weatherized or improved?
1: It's a good question. Um, and I'm not <laughs> a building code expert. Like me, so
0: that's fair. Yeah. Maybe no, that's, maybe that's too more. deep.
1: <laughs> there is no statewide building code in the state of Colorado. So that's one thing to just know. Um, but yes, and many of these households um, might be, it might be slightly, you know, older construction. And so, um, you know, it might be the, the code that they were built to at the time. Um, and a lot of times, these are just you know measures that that weren't taken. Um, so
0: yeah, there's just a need. Fascinating. Um, and anything else on weatherization?
1: The only other thing I'll say on weatherization is that we're really excited, in addition to all the regular measures that we do, um, to offer this this solar component. Um, and that's uh, for a few reasons. So one is you know, certainly reducing emissions. So, you know, anytime we can switch to solar, it's a wonderful thing, but it also really helps cut down bills. So if you can provide solar to a household, in addition to the energy efficient measures that you're taking, you know, you might really get their bill close to to, to zero. Um, and so that's that's an exciting thing that we are seeing and trying to, to promote as quickly as we can.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, let's pivot to transportation next. What kind of things are is the energy office focusing on transportation?
1: Sure. So, well, I will say that, you know, transportation is our number one source of emissions in the state. And um, I guess we'll talk probably about policy and our work with utilities in a moment. But um, when we think about reducing emissions from transportation, in some ways, it's a little bit trickier than reducing emissions from, say, our electric system, because there are only so many players and sort of Sources of emissions when you, when you think about our electric system. Transportation, you know, you have what six and a half million Coloradans, um, who, you know, get to work every day or to school or, um, to the grocery yeah. store. And to some extent, they make their own choices. And, um, we certainly have a, a lot of influence as the state in setting up systems. Um, but we also have a little bit less direct control. And so our transportation program really focuses on a few things. We certainly are interested in, you know, promoting um, public transportation and, and transit options in promoting smarter land use, more compact cities um, that tend to be walkable and, and um, more easy to, to use public transit and, and bikes and walking, et cetera. Um, and then we also promote the transportation, um, the transformation, excuse, excuse me, to electric so electric vehicles are sort of the, the last and really important step. Um, and so our office works really closely with our sister agency, the CDOT, the Department of Transportation, on a number of different programs, um, as well as our uh, sister agency, the Department of Public Health and Environment, which also works on a number of different programs here. So some key areas of focus, I would say, are one, um, we are really focused on for the electric vehicle side on charging infrastructure. Because to some extent, it's a little bit chicken or the egg. You know, if you have charging stations, will people buy electric vehicles? Or if you have electric vehicles, do you need to put in charging stations? But we know that without charging infrastructure and um, the knowledge that you're going to be able to charge up when you need it, many Coloradans will not feel comfortable in, in an EV um, Absolutely. We are definitely focused on how to best uh, make sure we have the charging infrastructure that we need across the state, focused on key corridors, um, and then also taking a, a really big uh, equity focus as well. So in the next couple of years, as we spend funds on charging, we'll be thinking a lot about uh, what communities and what community charging we can offer. Um, we also have a number of different programs that promote electric vehicles specifically. Um, and I will say that, you know, we're really seeing a big turning point in terms of EVs in, in the state. So uh, last December, uh, December 21, almost 13% of uh, light-duty vehicles that were registered in the state, so new, new vehicles, were, were EVs. And so... You know, most Coloradans st- still don't have an EV, but I would say most Coloradans probably know someone who does. And when it comes time to to buy their next vehicle, I think that it's something that they're really going to consider.
0: Hmm. Interesting. But the charging stations, uh, I, I'm a little confused on how some of those might work because would that be free electricity or would it be like you, you meter and, and pay to, to charge up these charging stations or yep. how does so that work?
1: Very few of them are free. Um, sure. but typically I will say that the cost of charging up an electric vehicle compared to the cost of, of gasoline is, is very attractive. So right now for, for most of the state, and of course it depends a little bit where you live and who your electric provider is and time of day sometimes, but generally speaking, um, to charge your, your vehicle is going to cost about the equivalent of a dollar a gallon, um, you know, compared to gas prices yeah. these days, which, um, I don't drive very often myself, but what is it, like 370 these days or more than that? I don't know.
0: Oh, it's it's higher than that right now. Is it? Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> Haven't filled up for a long time. But. Yeah. So it, it is certainly something that's already much more cost effective. Um, one of the other things I will say is, you know, there's still an upfront cost, of course, to buying an EV. And so we are very focused on how to make sure, particularly for, for low and, and middle income Coloradans, that it is something that they can afford, thinking about sort of, point of sale rebates and, and ways to make sure people don't have to have all the cost up front, um, which can be a big barrier for, for low income folks. Um, yeah. and that the charging is going to be available where they need it. But once you buy an electric vehicle, we do know that the cost of ownership is way lower. There's just a lot fewer moving parts, um, you know, compared to a, a traditional combustion engine. And so we're, we're really interested in seeing that in addition to never, never having to, to buy gasoline anymore.
0: Now I'm I'm curious, and you guys may not get this question very often, um, but the EV movement will necessitate a huge shift in supply chain and the requirement for natural resources that go into building batteries and the raw materials um, for the system, right? And these these uh uh vehicles. Um, are you guys thinking at all about how to promote that and make that Um, make the supply chain effort, uh, be more localized and perhaps promote some additional mining in Colorado for these materials so that we can, I mean, mine it locally and, and manufacture, potentially increase manufacturing here.
1: That is definitely outside my area of expertise. I, I don't know that there's, um, much mining in the state of Colorado for, um, you know, anything related to the creation of, of, um, batteries for EVs.
0: Yeah. You neodymium, know, lithium, lithium, cobalt. Yeah. Right? I mean, they, right? these resources have to come from somewhere, right? And I mean, the EVs are just being manufactured elsewhere and the batteries manufactured elsewhere. So, But like yeah. Colorado has a ton of natural resources. I mean, it makes sense to me that the energy office would be interested in trying to promote that if we're trying to increase the number of EV utilization.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know that we specifically have those, um, mineral, you know, deposits in the state. That's not certain, something that I've, um, heard of, um, sure. but um, okay. I, f- I f- food that, for thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will say that we work very closely with another department, the Office of Economic Development and International Trade, sometimes called it OEDIT, on um, advanced manufacturing. And on clean energy jobs and and promoting um, clean tech. So you know, I think we are certainly interested in in
0: electric vehicle. Well, maybe you can take that question back to them, right? And be like, hey, how do we promote you know some of the sourcing of these materials from our home state?
1: Yeah, I, I think you know to some extent you can, but hey, if those minerals are not here, there's not really much you can do about that. But um, I will say that I know that there are a number of companies that do things like, for instance, there's a, a company, and I'll have to look up the name, but um, that does electric school buses, and so you know. They manufacture those, I believe, at least part of it locally. You know, these days, almost nothing is manufactured completely in one place. Um, But I know that the company is based here. So we're certainly interested in the the sort of clean uh, tech economy.
0: Okay. Um, Do you want to touch on buildings and finance? I'm saving policy for last.
1: We have um, uh, another team that focuses on sort of the built environment. And so there's a, a number of different programs under there. A number of them are focused on financing. So I talked a little bit about the weatherization program, which is a free program, but again, focused on income qualified uh, households. So we number, we have a number of other programs that offer financing options for uh, people who don't qualify for weatherization. Um, So that includes households, you know, residential upgrades. If you want to do energy efficiency um, upgrades to your house or uh, do some, install some solar, Um, there's some financing that makes that a little more attractive. Um, through a program called Renew. Um, we have a, a C-PACE program, which is something that offers financing in the in the commercial sector. Um, and then we also have a, a program called Energy Performance Contracting, which works really closely with the public sector. So if you have a, a school district or a local government that wants to do a, a sort of a package of, of different energy efficiency or renewable energy upgrades, uh, we we work with uh different vendors to to be able to offer that sort of free of charge. Basically what happens is um there's some upfront financing that that comes in and the savings from the the measures kind of pay it back. And so the the it's really attractive for local governments who often can't come up with that sort of upfront down payment to to make those changes. Um, we also do work in the agriculture sector. Uh, starting next year, we'll actually have a program that's focused specifically on the cannabis sector, which is a, a large... Uh consumer of electricity in our state. And so we'll have a program that specifically focuses on them to, to both offer sort of technical assistance and audits, but then also financing. Um, so given given federal regulation, cannabis operators have a really hard time getting getting financing. They have really exorbitant rates and, and that can be a barrier for them to upgrade and do more um, energy efficiency or, or renewable energy. And then we also have a program focused on um, industrial Providers and, and that's something that we will have a much uh, a big expansion on uh, depending on on some pending legislation here in the state. So a number of different programs all focused on on the built environment. Um, and I will say, you know, again, this is a place where there's lots of different players and lots of moving pieces. But it, it is key that we uh, work uh, to to move it forward to reduce our, our emissions
0: overall. Interesting. Um, similar question to the weatherization effort with you guys serving about 2,000 homes. Um, how many people do you help service with kind of this program or buildings that might engage with you guys? I would, and it's okay to, if you don't have that number. Yeah,
1: there are so many different sort of programs. And so to, to count them up between them, I would, I would need to look, but I, I don't have sure. Any, any okay. All, all sorry.
0: <laughs> all, all good. But I mean, increasing insulation or helping people figure out financing. Um, but more in the industrial sector or public sector or, um, yeah, built infrastructure. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned operations team. I don't want to leave them out. What's, yes. uh, nobody does what, anything like? without them. <laughs> so. uh, yeah. Uh, someone's got to, you know, manage projects and make sure that you're moving forward, right?
1: Yeah. So we have a small, a small operations team. Um, Probably will grow. So, you know, we are a state agency and we uh, abide by state rules. So, you know, anytime we're going to procure something like a new contract for helping us run a program or conduct a study, you know, it's, it's through open bid. Um, and we, we follow all those rules. I will also say, you know, our office is, is small, but we get funding from many different sources, um, some federal sources, some state sources, a number of different funds, um, within each of those. And so, um managing those uh, every year and and money never comes for free right there's often reporting especially for federal money there's lots of requirements for reporting um, so that that all takes a lot of work and a lot of administration and oversight to make things uh make sure we do things correctly um yeah. and i will also just say that you know that's something we're also really looking at as as we see there are Many different bills, uh, none of which have actually passed yet, but all of which are well underway as part of the governor's air quality package, um, which would bring new funding from state sources to the energy office to run a number of programs. And so um, all of those uh, operations, people will have even bigger jobs uh, starting in, in July, which is the begin of, beginning of our next fiscal year.
0: Yeah, I've been in operations almost my entire career, so I, I think it's great. or uh-huh. I really support the people that are blocking and tackling, right? So. Yeah. Um awesome. Well let's let's shift to policy, because I, I think it's the most interesting bit. So what how how does the Colorado Energy Office think about policy? Yeah, I'll leave it open-ended for you. Okay.
1: So our we have a, a policy team and, and they really do two things. One is legislative policy. So of course we're at the end of our legislative session, couple uh just almost about two weeks left at this point. Um and uh we engage with legislators and of course with um, the rest of the governor's office and pushing forward the governor's agenda. And this year, one of the key focus um, points for the governor was air quality. So he announced the air quality package, I think initially back in November. Um, and it includes um, millions and millions of dollars uh, for a number of different air quality proposals. And, you know, for anyone who was around in Colorado last summer, You know why. Right. There were weeks where um, it just the air quality was was terrible. People could not go outside safely and exercise. Um, And this has been a a longstanding problem. There's a number of reasons. Right. There's both local sources and sources from other states that blow in. So some of its geography, but we got to do what we can here locally as well. and most of the the things that you want to do for air quality are also really important for climate change and so you know these are programs that that have kind of dual benefits so our policy team uh has been very busy it's a small team but they've been very busy pushing forward on on a number of different uh, legislative fronts, everything from um, there would be a, a new program that provides, it's a, a pilot program, provides funding to transit agencies to offer free fares during high ozone season, which is in the summer. Um, so, you know, getting more people uh, out of their individual vehicles into into a, a bus or, or a train um, during you know july and august when when ozone season is so bad um it's it would just run for two years but that will be something that would come through our office uh, there's a, a big program focused on the industrial sector um so you know i mentioned that we already have an industrial program it's pretty small right now um, but this would would drive uh, many millions of dollars to really expand that that program um, hmm.
0: there are so what would that look like then i mean would that be focused on trying to Reduce emissions in the industrial sector?
1: Exactly, exactly. So reducing greenhouse gas emissions from the industrial sector. Um, there's a number of, of sort of hard to decarbonize, uh, sectors within industrial. So, you know, everything from, from aviation, um, to, to others. And so it would really focus on, on those sectors and offering both technical assistance as well as some financial help to, to make changes. Um, so the, the legislative team, you know, they're of course busiest uh from from January to May. But really it's it's a year-round job because a lot of the work that happens in the legislative session really starts, you know, in, in the May prior. And so starting to work on what the ideas are, what the key focus is, um, you know, hearing from legislators, of course, they're the ones who actually sponsor the bill. So what are their areas, what are they hearing from their constituents, and then and then driving forward. So that is the legislative side, and that's really important for our office because that drives our our programs. Um, you know, so much of our our funding does come from state sources, and and we get direction from from what those those bills bring. Just I'll give one more example. We. To date, have not had a geothermal uh, focus. That's not uh, something that we've really focused on as an office. Um, yeah,
0: state- this is another one of my questions. I'm really curious. Okay.
1: <laughs> other, maybe other state energy offices have have had programs on this, and, and we haven't. It's possible we did at some point. I don't, you know, I, I don't haven't looked in the archives to know if we ever, you know, had that as a as a program focus. But there is, there's actually two different bills that focus on geothermal energy use, um, and one would would create a, a new a new program um, within our office, I believe it's $20 million to offer um, grants focused on, on promoting geothermal um, energy use. And then one is just focused on sort of a uh, overall uh, education around, um, around geothermal. So, you know, Again, not something that we were doing, not something that uh, we were against. It's just you know we only have so many people and so many resources, and so you know we look for for those bills that that really bring in both new funding and sort of new direction. So we'll we will, assuming it passes, have a geothermal program starting next year.
0: That's fantastic. I so I, I want to dig into that a little bit more and learn more more about it. But first, I there's there's a logistics or I guess involvement piece that I'm a little confused about and I think some of our listeners might be too. Um you, you hear Colorado Energy Office. I don't think a lot of people might understand kind of your guys' involvement versus like what the Public Utility Commission does, right? I and mean, you say like you're focused on reducing emissions. So some people might say, well, the energy office should just go out and build a bunch more renewable sources, like so that we can reduce emissions. But like, that's the job of the utilities, right? And the, Public Utility Commission. So help me understand kind of the relationship between you guys and the PUC and, um, the, the, and Excel, really.
1: Okay. Sure. So... Because
0: um, I make ignore sure it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I, um, so with the policy team, so in addition to our legislative focus on the policy team, the other side of that team is our regulatory team which does work specifically at the Public Utilities Commission, as well as a couple other commissions, the Air Quality Control Commission and um, occasionally the Oil and Gas uh, Commission, which, but I would say Public Utilities Commission is sort of the, the vast majority of the work of our regulatory team, so we can probably focus sure. there a little bit. Okay. So... The regulatory work uh, is related, but very different from the legislative work. So the commission is its own independent body. It sits under the Department of Regulatory uh, Agencies, or, or DORA, um, and their job is to regulate um, utilities, I believe, as well as transportation services. I I am not a public utilities commission expert, so i sure. i start by saying that right now. <laughs> um
0: there's, there's, the state government in Colorado, it's, it's big, right? There's a lot to understand and digest and figure out who, who's where and yeah, yeah.
1: For sure. And, and, you know, I, I will say that, you know, my job as deputy director, I am a, a mile wide and sometimes an inch deep. So, you know, I, I, I can't, um, I am not an expert right. on really anything when it comes down to it. Um, but we, we do have, um, as the Colorado Energy Office, we do have the, the right as, to be an intervener, um, on, uh, issues before the Public Utilities Commission, um, particularly with uh, electric utilities. So the Commission does not regulate all utilities within the state. It only um, regulates investor-owned utilities. So that's, that's one thing, important thing to understand. So if you live, for instance, in Colorado Springs, you are likely served by a Colorado Springs Utilities, which is municipally um, owned and, and run, and the Colorado Springs Utility is not uh, overseen by the Public Utilities Commission. Um, But if you live in Denver, for instance, and you are served by Excel, that is an investor-owned utilities and utility, and they are managed um, and overseen by the Public Utilities Commission. So. Utilities that, um, are investor owned have to submit, uh, plans and, and rates to the public utilities commissions for approval. And this is true, you know, not just in Colorado, but across most states have either a public utilities commission or sometimes it's called a public service commission. Um, and the, the reason that they do is, you know, they were set up, um, initially to to avoid price gouging so when you have a monopoly you know if you live in in denver you don't really get to choose who your electric provider is it, they have a monopoly over it you only have one um, you have this danger where they could charge you whatever they want and so and you can't you know can't go to anyone else and so the the public utilities commission was originally set up to make sure that that we have fair rates um, you know, since then there's a number of other things that they, that they do, but, um, that is sort of the, the overall feeling, um, so in our work at the Public Utilities Commission, you know, that is one of the, the key ways that we have been able to achieve the the greenhouse gas reductions um both to date but then also looking forward to the future and, and commitments that have already been made and, and approved by the Public Utilities Commission. And so, you know, for example, I will just cite that that there um on Monday, maybe it was Tuesday, earlier this week, uh Excel Energy. Which is the the largest investor owned utility in Colorado, um, announced that it was submitting a, a new settlement agreement to the Public Utilities Commission with a number of parties signing on. Um, and under this settlement, uh, it's Comanche 3, which is the last coal-fired power plant, which is located in Pueblo, would actually close even earlier um, than than previously uh, planned. It would close at the end of 2030 by no later than Jan- January 1st, 2031, um, and actually start to ramp down its service starting in 2025. Um, and in its place uh, would be a, a large expansion, particularly of renewable sources. So this is huge. So, you know, moving away from coal fired um, electricity to renewable electricity is the biggest way that we're reducing emissions in the state of Colorado. And so the, the energy office, along with many other parties, um, you know, was very excited for, for the settlement and, and to work with Excel.
0: The goal is reducing emissions. And I guess why focused on renewable energy rather than just clean energy?
1: That is an interesting uh, semantic difference. And if you yeah. want to <laughs> talk a little bit about the difference between renewable and clean. Um,
0: well, one, one's, yeah, one's uh, typically in the public eye, in my opinion, it's one's characterized as focusing on wind and solar. Um, and the other is focusing on other, all encompassing other technologies that may be emission-free. So uh, I, I guess I'll be more explicit with my question. Why? Is Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why does, well, not just nuclear, but you, you mentioned the geothermal and, you know, many people say that hydro is also good. So I'm curious mostly about geothermal, hydro, and nuclear. And if they're being incorporated in, um, the development or the energy offices, um, plan perspective, um, and if so, why or why not?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, so, you know, we will have this new program that focuses on geothermal. So we will be investigating and, and possibly offering some financing um, to use geothermal as a, an energy source, um, you know, and, and particularly um, sometimes in, in, in smaller scales, but possibly as electricity generation as well. Um, but when it comes to things like nuclear or, or hydro, at least on a large scale, it's, it's not that the energy office, um, you know, is in any way against them. It's that we don't see utilities proposing them. So, you know, when it comes down to it, wind and solar have really beat the market. Um, the costs have come way, way down. And when utilities look out, um, in the market for sources of, of electricity generation, they come back to wind and solar because it's cheapest and fastest. And so, you know, we are certainly not against uh, exploring or, or considering nuclear as an option or large-scale hydro as an option, but it's just not something that we've seen in, in proposals. Um, and I think the timelines to, to create any new nuclear or large-scale hydro um, operations, you know, the, the planning that's needed, the permitting that's needed, et cetera, just makes them a lot less likely and, and maybe a little less attractive um, yeah. than, than solar.
0: Has Colorado thought about looking at other states or uh, areas that have done large scale renewable implementation? Specifically, I'm thinking. Now, the two examples that are often touted are California and Germany and how the rollout of their renewable programs has led to a significant increase in electricity price.
1: So in, in many cases, you know, it's not just wind and, and solar. So for instance, with Excel bringing Comanche 3 offline, there will also be some, some natural gas in there. And so, you know, that is, that is often the case. Um, but again, I, I, I haven't seen anyone Proposed nuclear or, or, sure. or hydro. And, and so, you know, I am not by any means an expert. I am not a sure. utility um, developer. I'm not a renewable energy developer. So I, I can't really tell you, you know, exact co- costs and comparisons, but, um, we, we don't try to pick winners. You know, that's not, we're not like into promoting one particular source. Um, we are just interested in, in the transition away from, uh, fossil fuels that produce, uh, yeah greenhouse gases. And and then in terms of what works best, you know, it's going to be, a lot of it's going to be based on the site, on um, what sources are available and on the price. Um, and so that's that's what we've seen.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. The, the pivot or incorporating natural gas um, as one of the solutions when we're trying to eliminate emissions is confusing to me also because it's like, well, it feels like we're just kicking the can down the road rather than just moving straight to an emission-free source. Do you think Energy Office will focus on um, bring, bringing attention to that?
1: So, natural gas is—it's—it's it's certainly controversial. It's—it's it's sometimes talked about as a, a bridge fuel. Um, right. So It is certainly cleaner, um, you know, than than coal, for instance. Um, but it is still a fossil fuel, and it is not something that we we want to see in the long term. Um, but you know, again, that's where you go to. An individual utility, if it's proposing to use some some portion of, of natural gas, um, you know that is this, a combination of of considerations, but particularly yeah. reliability and
0: cost. So the geothermal project, um, you guys are deploying or hopefully fundraising up to twenty million dollars, and that'll be act as grants to companies that want to go out and build geothermal projects or what what's what's like?
1: So it, it hasn't passed yet. Um, okay. And, yeah, 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 And then, uh, you know, even if, if the bill passes, obviously the program still needs to be designed. So I, I sure. can't say specifically, um, but the, the overall idea is to allocate, um, uh, some portion of the funds, uh, for geothermal, uh, programs that would use geothermal as a renewable electricity resource. Right. Um, and so, I believe it was 8 million of the total of of 20 would be focused on that electricity generation part. And then the other 12 million would be broken out into sort of direct install grant programs um, for for geothermal and new construction. Some of that focused on disproportionately impacted communities. Um, Some of it focused on sort of larger scale um, construction. So, you know, a a campus like a a university campus comes to mind or or maybe a a medical campus, um, you know, sort of large scale. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm an engineer by background oh, and my profession. So for, to me, the two mission free sources that make the most sense are geothermal and, uh, nuclear power to dispatch, um, and have large, dependable, um, reliable electricity sources. So, and I think that it's awesome that you guys are focusing on geothermal on right? I'd be interested to see if you guys might have a similar focus, um, for nuclear in the future. Um, but I know there's some, certainly some oil and gas companies and some startups focusing on the geothermal piece, uh, locally that they're, Trying to advance horizontal drilling and some of uh, the fracturing techniques that have been developed in oil and gas to, um, advance the efficiency of geothermal electric projects. So super exciting. That'll be really, really interesting to see how that progresses. Yeah. Um, Dominique, we're almost out of time. Uh, we're actually up on our time, but I'm hopeful to just ask you kind of three more questions that okay. we ask, um, most of our, most of our guests. So, um, what's one thing about energy that, uh, scares you or keeps you up at night? Well, that's funny.
1: I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know that anything about energy keeps me up at night. The, the two things that keep me up about at night are my uh, seven month old and <laughs> children I, right? and climate change. Honestly, uh, more than energy. I mean, I, I am one of the many millions of Americans I think who suffer from climate anxiety. Um, you know, the the thought of what is our planet and what's our state going to be like in you know this summer and ten years from now and and thirty years from now, and especially I think for parents, but really for for anyone. Um, you know, 2050 is not that far away. This is the driest April we've had in 30 years. Um, the fire danger, particularly on days like today with, you know, with high winds is just um, unbelievable. I think the Marshall Fire, which we saw in December, you know, which used to never be part of the fire season and, and burned a thousand homes um, in, in a suburb, you know, really brings it home. Right. This is something that's a danger for all of us. Um, I would love my kids to be able to grow up in Colorado like I did and, and you know, have grandkids here. And I don't know that that's a reality. Right. Um And so I, I really try and be optimistic. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for hope. Um I think we know what we need to do. I think we have a lot of the technology we already need to do it. Um, but it is still a, a big transition uh, away from fossil fuels, you know, away from regular cars to electrify and, you know, both our transit system and everything else and to use renewables or, or at least clean, as you said, uh, energy sources. And then we're going to have to figure out how to how to kind of undo a lot of the damage we've done. And so that means both, you know, probably we're going to need some sort of large scale carbon capture. Some of that might be natural. Some of that might be um, yeah. not considered natural. We're going to need to really focus on biodiversity. We're going to need to focus on a lot of ecosystem restoration. Um, and so, you know, there's, I think we can get there, but there's going to be some pain and I think we're already experiencing that and just, you know, being in the end of April, um, and it being drier than the worst August I've ever seen. You know, if you go hike in the foothills, it's just crunchy. It's scary. And so that's what, that's what keeps me up at night, but I, I try to think hopeful thoughts and keep plugging along.
0: (laughs) So what, what advice do you have for, uh, young professionals in energy? Try
1: and get varied experience. That's, that's my only real advice, you know, having a little bit of exposure to either both the public and the private sectors to things that are sort of energy adjacent. Um, you know, I think for me having worked in water and seen what water utilities experience and their challenges has given me kind of a unique perspective occasionally. Um, just, just trying to, um, you know, it's it's great to go deep, but also try and make sure you have a, a little bit of context for, for your expertise. And so um, you know, any opportunities you have to kind of cross pollinate your own mind, that that's gonna, gonna pay off.
0: Absolutely. Um and then leave us on a positive or optimistic note, I mean we've <laughs> talked we've talked a lot about a bunch, but um here's here's your chance to uh, predict the future and and think about where we're going. So
1: I do have a lot of uh, reason for optimism. So we have made such progress um, in terms of setting really ambitious goals in our state uh, to reduce emissions. And we have a a governor who really cares about this. And we didn't even really talk about his leadership, but um, have some good stories on that for maybe some other day. Um, we have a, legis- a legislature that is really keyed in and we have a community that is that is excited. And, and, you know, everyone is seeing the effects of climate change, but people want to make sure that we they keep a Colorado way of life. And, you know, it, it's impossible to, to think of Colorado without thinking about things like our mountains and our snow. And so mm-hmm. we to, to reduce emissions to get there, but we're, we're moving there. Um, we have, we have the key partners. We have the utilities on board. We have the resources to do it. We have the technology to do it. Um, and we just need to move as quickly as we possibly can. And so I think, I think we'll get there. Um, we just have to, to stay the course and, and keep pushing.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Dominique. It's been absolutely great. We really appreciate
1: it. Awesome.